1: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 18th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, Out Front and Out Loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S communities. I'm David Hunt in Raleigh, North Carolina. On this outing of our show, we get a breast exam, talk with the straight director of an award winning film about being trans in Hollywood, and blow the doors off a Hollywood secret service.
2: This is Abby Dees
1: and Wendell Jones
2: talking with Scotty Bowers and Matt Turnauer about Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood.
3: Matt, how did you meet Scotty?
4: Scotty had just turned 90, and I met him in Gord Vidal's living room. That's right. I had known Vidal. I was his literary executor. And I'd heard about Scotty for years from um, members of the Hollywood community. Merv Griffin, in fact, was the first person to tell me about him, but not by name. He said there was a gas station on Hollywood Boulevard where you would go to get into trouble. (laughs) Go to get into trouble.
3: Get into trouble means have serious fun and have sex with anybody who came by and was up for it. Is that pretty
5: much right? Pretty much right, yes. Yes.
4: Yeah, Scotty was the male madam in the center of the sexual underworld of Hollywood starting from the time he got that job at the gas station. And this was a kind of necessary niche job, I think, for someone. Stars really couldn't live authentic lives. They were very constricted by the studio system and morals clauses and the contracts, the Hayes Code, and... um, Joseph Breen, who was the enforcer of that, and the studio's self-policing, trying to create a white picket fence mm-hmm. image for their product. And the stars were really confined in what they could do. And Scotty created a uh, environment where they could let loose a little bit. And that was the gas station.
3: When you say male madam, it sounds as if Scotty was pimping but actually from the film it looks as if scotty treated this as a public
5: service i mean you did not make a fortune doing this i didn't make anything doing it from the people if i fix you up with someone i never took a dime or wanted a dime why don't more people approach it that way i was doing it to help people guys just out of the service who didn't have a dime nothing not a penny and someone would come in and say like the looks of them, say, "I like to take him to dinner." And my answer was, "Why take him to dinner? You have drinks and dinner. Just give him twenty bucks and forget the dinner, and you got with him, and everything is perfect." That's the way I started it.
2: <laughs> How did people in this environment know to trust you? Because you really uh, didn't tell until no, very recently.
5: If you're around someone, like they'd be around me every day, right, or come in every day, soon. They got to be buddy-buddy with you. They knew you were a foxhole buddy, and everything was okay.
3: Now, you had a few people who were angry at you. Specifically, I'm thinking of Lucille Ball. And I'm wondering, why didn't those people try to rat you out? I mean, why was there so much protection and trust when...
5: Well, don't don't forget, in Lucille Ball's case, their push only goes so far. Because she was mad at you for finding girls for Ricky. Right, 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 because sometimes he'd see... Desi. Desi, in, an, he'd, in an afternoon, he'd see three different girls.
3: How oh. did people have this kind of time?
2: That was my big question.
5: <laughs> and, and she was awfully upset about it.
2: But for the most part, it sounds like people understood that this was sort of a necessary outlet.
5: Yes, that's well put, a necessary outlet. So Matt, what was it about Scotty's
3: story that intrigued you enough to make a film? Because you would think, oh, it's all the prurient aspects, but that's not at all what the film
4: looks like. I think Scotty supplies us with an alternate history of Hollywood. That's what I was really interested in doing. I thought his story was remarkable. I'd heard about him before he published his book. And I knew about this gas station and I had been a writer for Vanity Fair for many years and actually had it on my list of things to explore because it seemed like it was a way to get at the hidden history of a city and the type of films I often make are alternate histories or different looks at things that we all think we know very well. So that's how I approached the story. Scotty wrote a memoir that was published in 2012 when he was 89 called Full Service. It's a remarkable record of what was going on behind the scenes and between the lines in Hollywood. I thought that was very interesting. I wanted to make a cinema vérité film, though, about someone who, in his now 95th year, is one of the most vital people I know, who's certainly with it. You haven't lost the trick. Uh, and uh, Scotty is very much the star of the film. So you see in this mirrored hall of memories that Scotty is walking through in the course of the film, an image of Hollywood that you have never really seen before through his eyes and through his memories. The film really centers around him. It's not an archival flashback or hit parade of gossip and salaciousness. Although there's
2: some good stuff.
4: Yes, definitely. It's a human story, but I think it's got enough gossip to satisfy anyone that might want to know a lot.
2: Well, you talk about the alternative history, and I'd like to ask you both, actually, from your positions. You know, your wife... Scotty Lois, in the film, makes a comment that people were angry with you for talking because, as she said, you took away their dream. And I'm wondering, what do you think the dream was versus what was the truth? And I'd actually like both of you to answer that if you wouldn't mind.
5: True. People have dreams of people, and uh, a lot of those dreams put them up on a pedestal where they don't do a thing. They don't do anyone or anybody or anything. Where basically when it comes to reality, people are still people. Mm -hmm. You follow? Some people take someone because they become a well-known actor or something and really do put them on a pedestal like they never do one thing. Everything is right and wonderful that they do. Nothing out of the ordinary. Matt?
4: I think that's very well put. It's surprising to me how persistent the Dream Factory's images are. I mean, this was something that happened 70, 80 years ago, the golden age of Hollywood, that was intent on creating straight-washed images Uh Uh of people that were iconic and were brilliant in these extraordinary movies that have stood the test of time in many cases. I'm talking about Cary Grant, Katherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, Rock Hudson, the list goes on for the people that Scotty knew and consorted with and had sexual relationships with. But these people had lives off screen. Now, they're public figures and they turn out to be immortal icons of a particular time. And uh, that image has lasted But why shouldn't we know the full biography of someone who's an essential figure in the culture? Cary Grant is going to be iconic for many years to come. I don't want to know a straight-wash biography of Cary Grant. I'd like to have the additional information, if I'm going to care enough to know about Cary Grant's biography, of really who the person was in full. And Scotty provides that information as a primary source that uh, almost everyone else has left out of their uh, personal accounts, or at least everyone who survived to tell the tale has left out. This is Wensley Jones and Abby Deese in Hollywood. We're talking to Scotty
3: Bowers and Matt Tynauer about the documentary Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. But in a way, isn't somebody like Cary Grant a complete fiction? I mean, even Cary Grant wanted to be
4: Cary Grant. That's his famous line, Yes. <laughs> But that doesn't matter. Cary Grant was a person, originally Archibald Leach, who became Cary Grant, who made 100-plus movies and is probably the most famous leading man of his generation. There have been many biographies written about Cary Grant. Scotty provides additional information about who Cary Grant was as a person, behind the facade of Cary Grant that I think is very valuable to know. I've met many gay men who are of an older generation who are incredibly moved and identify with Scotty and his story a lot because they, as they've explained to me, uh, worshipped Cary Grant and thought to themselves or dreamt to themselves as uh, little boys or young men who were had same-sex orientations, oh, if only Cary Grant were for me, but I can't have Cary Grant because he's only interested in women. Well, they're very intrigued and fascinated and I think in a way relieved by hearing that Cary Grant had uh, different facets to his personality and sexuality than the press office of MGM wanted them to believe
3: now Scotty because your life and career were such an open secret were you hounded by tabloids because you were the person who actually had the dirt on everybody
5: no because I didn't let anyone know that I had anything on anyone because I never said anything so even though people would guess that I did in reality I did not Because I did not until well, when I wrote the book, when the people who were all friends, when they were dead. And let me tell you, when you're dead, you're dead, period, regardless of what somebody thinks. I've seen too many guys get killed. There
4: were great risks at the time. It wasn't just the public finding out. You were gay. Uh, There were lots of hazards. There were morals clauses in the contract that would assure you would be fired. There was a vice squad that was part of the Los Angeles Police Department that was like a sexual Gestapo.
5: They were red hot after World War II, the vice squad.
2: Were they red hot after you? Red
5: hot. They were red hot for years because it was a business. Money was made.
2: So, did people pay them off to keep them quiet? Well,
5: uh, Harry Weiss was uh, number one attorney. What Harry took me down to show me what and how he did it. When Harry would have a party at his beautiful home in Beverly Hills, he would have judges and their wives there. So, when he had a trial, he would put it before a judge he knew. Then he would take his boys, give them money to go pay the resting officers off out in a hallway, and they would disappear. And the judge would say, where are the arresting officers? Oh, they had more important things to do. Case dismissed. He would dismiss 10 cases an hour, in an hour that way by paying off the guys with cash, of course. And that's just the way he operated.
2: Was the McCarthy spirit also playing into this? Were you aware of the McCarthy hearings and investigations going on with your friends and clients? I,
5: well, yeah, I mean, naturally you heard about it at a time. I paid no attention to it, but certainly did hear about it. But ironically, Jagger
4: Hoover, who was a huge supporter of McCarthy's and vice versa, was a client of Scottie's. So this actually shows you the hypocrisy and lies that uh, really were the foundation of this whole corrupt an oppressive system at the same time hoover who was probably a closet homosexual was assuring that gay people were persecuted arrested and had their lives ruined he was living a secret life and encountered scotty in la jolla and you can fill in the and he liked to
5: dress up in women's clothes and my friend the doctor in la jolla that he would come to him and of course he always had a young Tall, nice-looking FBI agent with them who was straight, you know, and uh, the four of us would be at dinner, and my friend, a the doctor, there would be in women's clothes, and Jay, who would be in women's clothes, and the FBI to be FBI guy, and I'd be the two guys there.
2: <laughs> Can you say Mike Pence? <laughs> My anyway.
5: People ask me about
4: corroboration, and they don't believe Scotty, and theres I call them the doubters. There's a whole tribe of people that really push back against this, and people who want a kind of straight-washed history. I call them the pearl clutchers. <laughs> the pearl clutch. But so much corroboration has come up over the course of making this film. In the case of Hoover... I was interviewing a U.S. attorney whose parents vacationed in La Jolla in the 1950s. I didn't tell him I was doing anything with Scotty. I didn't mention Scotty Bowers at all. And apropos of nothing, he said, oh, well, you know, my parents used to hang out in La Jolla in the 50s, and they used to run into Hoover there all the time, and he was there with his lovers.
5: Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> so
4: this is a U.S. attorney telling me something his very straight-laced Republican New Jersey parents told him which confirms, at the time and place, Hoover's presence in La Jolla, which is where Scotty places him. So many things like that have come up in ancillary interviews I've done as supporting evidence.
2: I will share just a very minor version of that. I was watching the film with my mother, and we got to the park about the uh, Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Yeah. And my mother said, oh, I remember as a little girl. My mother, who was from Los Angeles and sort of followed the social goings on in LA and in the East Coast, she said, even I think before she even entered the world of the monarchy in England, that she was well known to be basically a courtesan and somebody who was very sexually promiscuous might be the wrong word, but this was not a surprise to her and that she had heard this from the time that she was a little girl in the 30s. But there is this image of the two of them, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, being this straight couple cast out because of their love, but it was more complicated than that, as you
5: say. He could have never been King of England just on the basis of the way he talked, (laughs) the funny little voice he had. (laughs) That's true.
2: And what he was doing.
5: Well, she, Wally, would tell him every move to make, do this, do that. She
1: controlled him 100%.
2: And they were both involved, each of them, with men and women.
1: Oh, Yes. We'll be right back with the conclusion of Scotty's story after this quick break. Don't go away.
6: Dorothy Thompson's Other World coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Dorothy Thompson, the first American journalist to be expelled from Nazi Germany, became one of the few female news commentators on radio during the 1930s. Married three times, her second husband being author Sinclair Lewis, she also had a relationship with author Krista Winslow. They fell in love in 1932 at Dorothy's 10-day-long Christmas party. In her diary, Dorothy tried to come to terms with being happily married and yet wanting that curious tenderness. When the Christmas party was over, Dorothy followed Krista to Budapest in Italy. They reunited in New York in early 1934. Their friend John Ferrar said, they were a couple. If you ask Dorothy for dinner, you ask Krista too. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dick Matthews, in Phillips, Maine.
7: Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974.
1: Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Now, back to Scotty and Matt.
2: This is Abby Dees.
4: And Wendell Jones.
2: Talking with Scotty Bowers and Matt Turnauer about Scotty and the secret history of Hollywood.
4: In terms of corroboration, this is the thing that, having gone through this process of making the film and kind of, talking about it at dinner parties or at social occasions, I hear what people can't believe and they push back on because they read Scotty's book. I'd say the number one are Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and the number two are the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. People's like, I just put my foot down there. This (laughs) is absolutely impossible. Well... He places them at the Beverly Hills Hotel at the time. We found a photograph of them at the Beverly Hills Hotel with the pugs in the photo in the 50s, right when Scotty says that he was having encounters with them there. Then if you read one of the volumes of the Cecil Beaton Diaries, there's a chapter titled Scotty in which Beaton talks about his relationship with Scotty. Beaton photographed the Duke and Duchess. He was friendly with them, as he was with the whole royal family of that period. So there's another connection. Scotty knew Beaton through George Cucor. Beaton was in Los Angeles as the uh, production designer of My Fair Lady right. at the time. So there are all these vectors that connect and point in the right direction. And uh, what do you say to people that don't believe
5: the well, things that you say? Basically, as a matter of fact, when I met the Duke and Duchess he said i feel like i already know you because four of my friends have recommended you over the years Cecil beaton who was a royal photographer byron desmond hurst who was a director there and uh, peter bull who was an actor an english actor peter bull and uh, david brown there were four people that told him about me if you ever get to los angeles you got to look up scotty so he felt i like, oh, i felt like i already knew you because Of four friends recommending you, which is pretty nice.
4: There were other ways that you had connections too, whether you knew it or not. Noel Coward, for instance, who you knew—that's right. Noel Coward's not even in the film, but you know this was yeah. mm -hmm. This was Cafe Society, basically. On one level, there was Hollywood. Then there was intersection with Cafe Society. The Duke and Duchess were certainly in that Cecil Beaton. All these people crossed over. We have to remember: is it was a very small world. Hollywood was a very small town and the gay community was even smaller and the secret had to be kept and people, once you were within that community and were trusted, you knew a lot basically, which I think is something that we don't realize now. People say, oh, well, how could Scotty have known so many people? It's like a very small world. If you knew George Cucor and he trusted you, you, by definition, would have met Hepburn and Tracy and Cary Grant.
3: Scotty, what has it been like, as a man with his finger on the pulse of the culture, to watch gay society go from being this terribly hermetically sealed, closeted thing to... West Hollywood, Pride Parades. The Abbey is the center of you right know, the energy. After, I mean, what's it been like to watch? That tra- yeah, yeah, to watch that transformation?
5: Well, I know, but uh, it, it should always be that way. I mean, regardless of what someone digs or what their bit is, everybody should be buddy, buddy, you know.
2: You know, one of the things that I think gets missed, and I've seen people refer to you as gay. I've seen them refer to you as a sort of gay madam, for lack of a better yeah. word. But you yourself are in many ways like the newest generation of yeah. people where you're really not terribly concerned about those labels. No,
5: I've been referred to as a lot of things. <laughs> but what's the difference? When somebody refers to you as something and you put, say, start coming up with, no, it's not true. Go along with everything that they say because that's what they believe, so you're not going to change them. So, whatever they think, that's the way it is.
4: I'm so inspired by his no labels, unneurotic attitude toward sex and sexuality. It's extraordinary to me. I think this is why Dr. Kinsey was fascinated with Scotty. He was very much active in a time where sexuality and identity was very siloed. It had become more siloed even. If you read the scholarship on this, there are wonderful books, there's one called The Invention of Heterosexuality. Basically the church and the medical community all kind of like herded people into these definitional categories. And we were really saddled with this in the middle of the last century. And as the middle class became more and more prominent in the country, these definitions became more and more prominent. Scotty just dispensed with this in life and never was concerned with it. It's very avant-garde, and you're right. It's very ahead of its time in terms of what younger people seem to be embracing today, this sort of attitude that has nothing to do with the received wisdom that we were all um, freighted with. But, Scotty, you seem to somehow escape the whole being worried about what people thought of you. and um. uh,
5: Right, because people that go through life wondering what people think about them and how they feel about them, you can foul yourself up completely trying to please someone else. Yeah. You can please someone else by being yourself, too.
3: This is Wenzel Jones and Abby Deese in Hollywood. We're talking to Scotty Bowers and Matt Tynauer about the documentary Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. I have to ask, Scotty, have you ever said no to anything? No.
2: That's a really good question. You're the first
4: one ever to ask that. Um, I've asked him that a hundred different ways. And uh, things get... Uh, pretty woolly when you get him going in a one hour tear through the mirrored hall of memories
2: (laughs) I would like to come back to uh, Dr. Kinsey because I think that's fascinating but I think this brings up that might be getting a little bit lost in all the talk about the famous people that we know that you were providing sexual services as a boy and a teenager and at one point for a number of Catholic priests Right. and what struck me about that is that the way you describe it is that it was a completely consensual exchange from your point of view. Do you still feel that way? Well,
5: you'd say I feel that way, yes. I mean, if I appear to feel that way, then I must feel
2: that way. It looks like you do. Yeah. And looking at all of the stuff that's happening right now with the Catholic Church and the priests, from your perspective, how do you see that? What what do you think? uh,
5: I always knew that most priests were gay. Uh, They wouldn't have gone into that if they weren't, basically. And uh, as I said, when we moved to Chicago, I remember we moved on Oakwood Boulevard, and uh, we had a car with a little trailer, my mother, sister, and brother, and I, and we were unloading. The priest came across and introduced himself. I go over and stay all night with that night. Uh, That first night, I'm overstaying all night with him.
2: (laughs) But how do you... I don't even know how to ask this. What? (laughs) How, this is such a painful thing for so many people, but it wasn't a source of pain for you.
5: Never. How could it be a source of pain?
2: I don't know.
4: I've asked him many times about this as well, and I'm sure this is controversial. I'm sure it was controversial in his book, and it may be in the movie. Scotty feels that uh, this was okay for him. And that's his opinion. He's been asked and answered that uh, many times in my presence, and it happens in the movie. I think three times. I, I quiz him on it. Um, It's very difficult for people to hear something like that. But in the course of the film, I wanted to show Scotty for who he is and what he believes. And this is, uh, I don't believe you believe that this is the right thing for everybody. But you believe that it was the right thing for you.
5: I think I think everyone should have their. But some people are too rigid to square in what they do i can't do this i can't do that if this life is bad the next life will be better so many people do without in this life thinking there's going to be another life and because they did without in this life they did nothing that they control the next one which is hey have fun as you go because you only got one life to live
4: (laughs) i think that's an interesting message you know people ask me what i've learned from scotty i'm kind of like a bit of an opposite from him. I'm a cautious person, and I've kind of had all these fear-based reactions to sex and sexuality that are probably much more common among people of my generation. I think Scotty really is the outlier. He showed me that often you curse the chance that was wasted, which is a Cole Porter lyric. Cole Porter also having been a friend of yours. And of course, we're talking about consensuality here as well. And I think In um, your career as a male madam, everything was consensual, and I've interviewed many people who were present at that time and attest to that, that uh, this was a a happy period of um, really um, kind of of incredible sexual halcyon period uh, that Scotty uh, helped create for a lot of people that were in
3: need. So few of us will ever get to leave a legacy, but you clearly are going to. What would you like it to be? How would you like people to speak of you 50 years from now?
5: Whatever way they want to do. That's the best way to do it. I mean, most people can't speak badly of me, but uh, people do speak different, so rather than try to rearrange it, whatever they want to say, perfect. (laughs) Or do.
2: I know that we only have a minute, but very briefly, uh, could you just say what you did for Dr. Kinsey? Because his research was groundbreaking. And you were very key to a lot of that research.
5: Well, yeah, because when I first met Dr. Kinsey, he said his best interviews are people in prison. I said, sure, because the goddamn warden lets them off all day and puts them in the library to talk to you. They're going to f- bullshit you all day long. Obviously, that's not a great deal. He thought it was. And I convinced him and got him to where... to to know the the reason why they did it. You know, prisons are the best interviews. Certainly they are, because they get time off. And Matt, we have to ask every filmmaker, what do you want people to take away from this?
4: I think Scotty really teaches us a lot. He's a primary source and an eyewitness to a side of Hollywood that has been uh, erased from the historical record. So his account of what he saw oftentimes in the sexual underworld that he was, in effect, mayor of, provides a missing piece from the historical record. And I think it's a vital missing piece. I'm amazed that people dismiss it as shenanigans or gossip. I make the analogy of Caravaggio, for instance, one of the greatest painters of his period, was to quote Gore Vidal, a same sexualist, at least for part of his life. Don't you want to know the full biography of Caravaggio? Why do you want to know a straight-washed biography of that man? You just want to know what he was doing in the painting studio, but you really don't want to know anything else about him. I think that leads you to misunderstanding him because a lot of the models he used in his paintings, for instance, were hustlers or prostitutes. This was the demi-monde that he existed in. So you need to really know and acknowledge the full biography of these great cultural figures. And I would argue that Cary Grant, for example, just to name one, is a great lasting cultural figure. So we can't straight wash history and Hollywood is a part of history.
3: This is Wenzel Jones and Abby Dees Hollywood. We've been talking to Scotty Bowers, the author of Full Service, My Adventures in Hollywood and the Secret Sex Lives of the Stars, and Matt Teinauer, the writer-director of the documentary Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood.
0: The minute you walked in the joint I could tell you where I'm in No distinction, Harry I'd are looking so refined said, wouldn't you like to know what's going on? I go for every man I see
1: Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood can be rented to stream on Vudu, Amazon Prime, or Apple TV. And, of course, Scotty's book is called Full Service, My Adventures in Hollywood and the Secret Sex Lives of the Stars. A fictionalized version of his story can be found in Ryan Murphy's Netflix series, Hollywood. Next, in honor of last week's observation of National Coming Out Day, what could be more appropriate than Michael Mouse Tulliver's coming out letter to his parents from Tales of the City? And who better to read it than the author himself? Armistead Maupin.
8: Dear Mama, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write. Every time I try to write you and Papa, I realize I'm not saying the things that are in my heart. That would be okay if I loved you any less than I do, but you are still my parents and I am still your child. I have friends who think I'm foolish to write this letter. I hope they're wrong. I hope their doubts are based on parents who loved and trusted them less than mine do. I hope especially that you'll see this as an act of love on my part, a sign of my continuing need to share my life with you. I wouldn't have written, I guess, if you hadn't told me about your involvement in the Save Our Children campaign. That, more than anything, made it clear that my responsibility was to tell you the truth, that your own child is homosexual, And that I never needed saving from anything except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm sorry, Mama, not for what I am, but for how you must feel at this moment. I know what that feeling is, for I felt it for most of my life. Revulsion, shame, disbelief, rejection through fear of something I knew, even as a child, was as basic to my nature as the color of my eyes. No, Mama, I wasn't recruited. No seasonal homosexual ever served as my mentor. But you know what? I wish someone had. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando had taken me aside and said, You're all right, kid. You can grow up to be a doctor or a teacher just like anyone else. You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can succeed and be happy and find peace with friends, all kinds of friends who don't give a damn who you go to bed with. Most of all, though... You can love and be loved without hating yourself for it. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. I had to find it out on my own with the help of the city that has become my home. I know this may be hard for you to believe, but San Francisco is full of men and women, both straight and gay, who don't consider sexuality in measuring the worth of another human being. These aren't radicals or weirdos, Mama. They are shop clerks and bankers and little old ladies and people who nod and smile to you when you meet them on the bus. Their attitude is neither patronizing nor pitying, and their message is so simple. Yes, you are a person. Yes, I like you. Yes, it's all right for you to like me, too. I know what you're thinking now. You're asking yourself, what did we do wrong? How did we let this happen? Which one of us made him that way? I can't answer that, Mama. In the long run, I guess I really don't care. All I know is this. If you and Papa are responsible for the way I am, then I thank you with all my heart, for it's the light and the joy of my life. I know I can't tell you what it is to be gay, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not hiding behind words, Mama, like family and decency and Christianity. It's not fearing your body or the pleasures that God made for it. It's not judging your neighbor except when he's crass or unkind. Being gay has taught me tolerance, compassion, and humility. It has shown me the limitless possibilities of living. It has given me people whose passion and kindness and sensitivity have provided a constant source of strength. It has brought me into the family of man, Mama, and I like it here. I like it. There's not much else I can tell you except that I'm the same Michael you've always known. You just know me better now. I have never consciously done anything to hurt you. I never will. Please don't feel you have to answer this right away. It's enough for me to know that I no longer have to lie to the people who taught me to value the truth. Marianne sends her love. Everything is fine at 28 Barbary Lane. Your loving son, Michael.
1: Mouse's coming out letter was based on Armistead Maupin's own coming out letter to his parents in Orlando and it never fails to move me. Don't go away, we'll be right back with more after this quick break.
6: Dorothy Thompson, American journalist and radio commentator, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Graduating from Syracuse University in 1914, Dorothy Thompson began writing. Then in 1919, she left for Europe and started interviewing socially relevant people. As a reporter for the Jewish Correspondence Bureau, She secured interviews with many world leaders, as well as with Sigmund Freud. Eventually, Thompson interviewed Adolf Hitler, which helped shape her anti-Nazi views. After she published her book, I Saw Hitler, the Nazi government became infuriated and deported her in 1934. Once in New York, Thompson began writing a regularly syndicated column for the New York Herald Tribune. It was called On the Record, and it brought Thompson fame. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dick Matthews, and Philip Maine.
0: Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to I Am Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since 1974. <music>
1: Welcome back, I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Doctors say mammograms are more important than ever, after many skipped annual breast cancer screenings during the COVID-19 pandemic. As a reminder, we revisit a visit Abby Dees made to her doctor for a screening. Hey, we record everything at IMRU.
2: I'm way overdue for my mammogram. It's been about six years since I had one. And, of course, the more time that goes by, the more I get nervous about getting a mammogram, afraid of what it might show. Does breast cancer run in your family at all? It doesn't. My um, mom had... uh, cyst in her breast in the 60s around the time that I was born. This tells you how much technology and the attitudes about this have changed. The assist is a completely normal thing. Lots and lots of women have cysts. It's important to have them checked out. But now they do these, you know, outpatient things to check them out if they're at all concerned about them. But my mom tells me the story of palpated assists. There might have been a mammogram. I don't know if they did them the way they do now. And um, so she went in for surgery to remove the cyst, and she signed a piece of paper saying that if they felt that that cyst was cancerous, that they could perform a mastectomy on the spot. So she signed the paper, she went in for surgery, she said she didn't know if she was going to wake up with her breast or not, and she woke up and, you know, one, two, there were two. And it was just a cyst. It was a benign cyst. And we all have benign cysts. So I know that is so not the way they do it now. Now there's so many ways to investigate a cyst. And so many friends of mine have had cysts and lumps that had a question mark on the test. And it's no big deal. Yeah, I'm 42. So I'm due. And I haven't had one yet. So I'm kind of excited to see this experience with you to kind of know what I'm in for, to see it first before I actually have to do it. Wow, I didn't know that. I just assumed you'd had them before. Oh yeah, it's easy. I think it's a non-event. There's always a little bit of nervousness when you get a test for something because then you're committed to finding out what the answer is and I'd rather know now and if there is something that comes up you really do want to know because I know so many survivors of breast cancer. I know so many people who have caught it early and because they've caught it early it really the word cancer has got so much associated with it but I know that there's so many ways to approach that. The waiting room with I don't know a dozen people, a dozen people waiting to go in, every single kind of woman. I've been given a little shorty gown that's like a sh- wraparound shirt. <laughs> and I can leave everything else on, but I have to take my top off and my bra off and put my little short pink gown on.
9: There's patients who come in just for a screening mammogram, which is what you're having today. And basically what is done, you have two views of each breast, and then the tech will take you in, have two views of each breast, and then you leave. There's no results given right away because it's a screening mammogram. Mm -hmm. Okay, You leave, you'll get a report within a few days, you'll get a letter stating your results. If there's anything um, that the doctor sees that they question, we'll call you back for more views. Mm -hmm. So usually what we do is give you a phone call and make an appointment for you to come back.
2: Um, My doctor told me that he said, now, don't be surprised. They're probably going to call me back because I have dense breasts. And he said that this was a question of that California law now says if the technician finds that there's dense breast tissue, that they would just do this as a matter of course. It doesn't necessarily mean anything is wrong, but it's a follow-up. It's true to an extent, but we've always
9: done that. Yeah. I mean, it's always been the case where women who have dense breasts, mm-hmm. it's harder to visualize something inside the breast because of all of the white matter. Mm-hmm. Patients with, quote, fatty, mm-hmm. unquote, breasts, not Sorry. cystic, oh, not just cystic. fatty, uh-huh. fatty breasts are great breasts to do mammograms on uh. because they show up as black. Uh-huh. And then when there's something growing, which is white, it's mm-hmm. very obvious. Okay. When you have dense breasts, you have naturally all this white tissue interspersed mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's dense. Mm-hmm. So those are the types of breasts that it's more difficult to diagnose a cancer.
7: You were here last with us in 2007. Have you had a mammogram no. in between that time? No. Okay. And are you having any problems today no. with your breasts? No. And any family history of breast or ovarian cancer?
2: No family history of breast cancer, cystic breasts, yeah. Uh, Alrighty, and have you had any
7: surgeries on your breasts, ever? Okay. Have you ever had a breast screening ultrasound where they just did an ultrasound screening for no problems, they just kind of went over your breasts? Okay, great. If you have any questions for me, what I'm gonna do right now, same as before, we're gonna take four to six pictures.
2: Okay.
7: The doctor will read the films later, and if they do need you back for anything, we will call you back
2: it just looks like kind of a big printer or something it's It's, it's just a sort of little table surface and presumably the top comes down and with my breast in the middle of it This is called a bucky this is Mm -hmm. where the detector and all that is so you lay your breast on that
7: and the x-rays come out from up here Mm -hmm. and go to the detector and your breast is right here and this is the paddle we use to compress your breast looks simple enough yes very important to compress the breast because basically you wanna compress the tissue out as much as possible mm-hmm. to avoid superimposition that you may get called back for.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you do with a woman who's fairly small breasted?
7: Um, we use a smaller paddle and mm-hmm. we do a lot of pulling and pushing, <laughs> but we can do it. <laughs> But it really can be done. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if they're super, super small, it's a little more challenging. But you get it. But we get it. Yeah. Um, my mother in law
2: never gets a mammogram because she's worried about radiation. So,
7: radiation is very low dose. Mm-hmm. Um, you get, when you take a chest x ray, this is probably an eighth of a chest x ray. Really? Right. Pretty close to that, mm-hmm. yeah. You can go ahead now and stand right here okay. and open up your gown, my dear. All right. I'm gonna start with your left breast.
2: I am putting here. my breast against this machine.
7: I want you to turn your feet facing the machine and turn your head towards me so you're looking this way, perfect. What I'm gonna do, gonna feel a little high, but don't worry about that.
2: Angela, feel free to comment on the things you see.
7: What I'm doing now, I'm pulling you in just to get as much uh-huh. breast tissue on there as I can, okay? okay?
2: So far, so I'm good. I'm gonna go
7: real slow, don't worry. We're gonna compress your breast.
2: I'm basically leaning against this machine, and she's just sort of moving the table and the little plastic piece on top of it, kind of to create a, well, a boob sandwich. A little bit more, okay? You all right? Yeah, it's not yet boob panini.
7: Almost there. We're almost there. We're good. Okay. Well, let's make the first exposure. I just want you to hold your breath right where you're at. Don't move. Okay, you can go ahead and step back now. You might want to lift up. There you go. Give me just a few seconds.
2: Okay. How long have you been doing this? Oh, my
7: goodness. twenty Over 20 years. So you've seen technology change quite oh. a bit. Amazingly. Yes, it has changed quite a bit. And it's changing for the better. Good. Yeah. We're Good. doing digital now, where before they used to film screen. The last four years, we've been in digital. And it's clearer. You can see through dense tissue better and um, images, you don't need any film, you don't need to develop anymore. Mm-hmm. It goes straight to the computer, straight it's to really
2: the doctor. I tell you, they look perky yeah, in x-ray <laughs> version. Yeah, it's just sort of swirly and gray. Yeah. I mean, it's what it's supposed to yeah, look like. Yeah, these are the vessels, Uh huh.
7: and this is your, your breast tissue. All yeah. this air, it's all fatty.
2: I gotta say, I've seen pictures in the past, and this mm-hmm. is really clear. Yeah. That's really Good. obvious, really yeah. Nice. So you've seen a bazillion breasts. Yes. Is there such thing as a typical breast?
7: Not really, no. Everybody's different. Yeah. Yeah. No, everybody's mm-hmm. different. There, We have um, dense, mixed, fatty, mm-hmm. all kinds. Yeah. Tiny, tiny. Tiny, big. <laughs> you're, you're a little worried, <laughs> Angela.
2: <laughs>
7: all right, now turn your feet back over to the, I mean, and look at me this way. Good.
2: Leaning against this machine again? Yep. It's going to have you roll. Do you feel forward. uncomfortable having somebody else touch your breast? Not really. I'm going to go but, real slow. I think slow. that makes some people nervous. I think it does, too, but, y- you know, she's... Touching me respectfully and obviously for the purpose of getting a good picture. And it doesn't, this is way easier than getting a gynecological exam or a pap smear.
7: Okay, we'll shoot the next one. You can go ahead and stop breathing right there. Just hold your breath.
2: It's almost like looking at this screen like Abby is a cartoon figure. (laughs) And we get to see a variety of angles of your breast and how it gets kind of smushed.
7: Yes, There's the basic two views, the cranial, claw down from mm-hmm. above, and then we do a side view to get all the mm-hmm. breast tissue on. So the next two
2: are gonna be side views. Okay, yep. so it's a vertical panini. I gotta tell you, this it's not uncomfortable. It's more just, it's a little awkward because you're kind of yeah. leaning against this machine. You know, you don't usually go breast first in most things. All
7: right. Now, I want you to take off the left side of your gown all the way off. This okay. is the view where we're gonna get under the arm and the rest of the outer part of the breast tissue. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I spoke too soon. And this one of us might be a little more uncomfortable but okay. not too bad because we're getting more anatomy in there. Okay. So what I want you to do now, is just kind of bend slightly forward, wonderful under there. Mm-hmm. Bend your elbow and kind of relax your arm. Don't hold on too tight. What happens is everybody has a different um threshold and also yeah. their breasts compress differently. You can breathe. Some people you can compress all the way and your breasts will allow it. Yeah. Others you just go to a certain point and, and it's it. and yeah and you want to compress so the breast is nice and taut. That means mm-hmm. the breast tissue is spread out as far as it's gonna go. Yeah. We know that we've got all the breast on there by getting all the muscle. This is your pec muscle.
2: Oh, yeah, I see that.
7: Pec muscle has to go down to the nipple line, and this is inframammary fold because mm-hmm. you still have breast tissue down here, so that's what mm-hmm. you want to try to get. You're not going to be able to get this on everybody, but you, this is what
2: you go Which for. Which is basically the stuff underneath the breast. Because
7: it goes underneath yeah. a little further. Breathe, and you're all finished. Cool. That was easy. You did really good. Thank so how, do, how long do you think the overall procedure normally takes? The overall procedure should take about 10 minutes.
2: Mm-hmm. And the mammogram itself was not that big a deal. You know, I'd rather go out for coffee and donuts. But it was quick, it was easy, they don't have to take any blood. <laughs> and I feel sort of stupid that I was avoiding
1: this. Women aged 45 to 54 should get mammograms every year. Women 55 and older should switch to mammograms every two years. Or they can continue yearly screenings. Tangerine is a 2015 breakthrough film that was shot with three iPhone 5s smartphones and featured a neophyte star. The film received critical acclaim for its screenplay, direction, and performances, and for its portrayal of transgender individuals.
8: It grabs you from the first frame. Gritty and groundbreaking. Rolling Stone. Uproarious, a must-see. The New York Times. Even those who don't count themselves among the transgender prostitute movie shot on an iPhone demographic will want to try Tangerine Daily Variety. My name is
10: Sean Baker. I'm the co-writer and director of a film called Tangerine. Tangerine is about two transgender sex workers who frequent the area of Santa Monica and Highland, which is an intersection that borders West Hollywood and Hollywood in Los Angeles, California, and it takes place on Christmas Eve. Cindy finds out from her best friend, Alexandra, that her boyfriend has been cheating on her while she's been away in jail for the last month.
0: I got some good news to tell you. I'm what? I've been keeping a secret about me and Chester. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! I know what it is! Oh, You're girl. breaking up with him. Thank God! Why? Because, Why? honey, for they to be cheating Why? on you like that... Wait, 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 what? What?
10: She decides, at that point, to track down the cisgender woman who is a part of the affair and confront her.
0: All men cheat. That's why they're called trade. Do them just as dirty as they do us. Out here, it is all about our hustle, and that's it. What are you plotting? What is
8: this based on?
10: Well... My co-screenwriter, Chris Bragash and I were both cisgender white guys from outside of that world. And so when we decided to make this film, we had no idea what the plot or script would be. And we decided to meet people from this area, immerse ourselves. And this stemmed from just the multiple stories and anecdotes that we heard. One of our actresses, Katana Kiki Rodriguez, told us that in the past recently, her boyfriend had cheated on her with a cisgender woman. And so we took that and ran with it. We thought it was a sad but universally themed story of infidelity. And then we thought this could be quite a layered story and take our characters on a journey. That's where the A-plot comes from. The B-plot and all the other details really came from what we observed, what we heard, and really the feedback that we got from women in the area who told us how they wanted to be represented on screen and what stories they wanted to be told on screen.
8: So you found the actresses first?
10: Yeah. These are the sort of movies I make that are usually about worlds I'm not a part of. So what happens is that I have to spend a tremendous amount of time in the research process. But what I do is that I blend stages of filmmaking. So while I'm looking for the script, I'm also keeping my eyes open for possible lead actors. And in this case, we found Maya, Maya introduced us to Kiki, and immediately when I saw the two together, I thought, okay, well now we're gonna have to write a screenplay with two lead characters for these two women to play.
6: Where did you find Maya?
10: Chris and I initially hit the streets, just introducing ourselves to people on the streets. And we weren't getting very far because we were looked at as either police or tricks ourselves. And so we couldn't really find anybody to share that enthusiasm with us and want to be a part of this project. And then we expanded our search and we went over to this LGBT center, which is a block away from Santa Monica and Highland. And there's a courtyard there. And we saw Maya sitting there with some friends. And the first thing I thought was, that's the one. We have to speak with her. Her physicality drew us in, but also her aura. She was commanding the conversation that she was a part of at that moment. And she had a strong personality, even from 30 feet away. So we approached her. She said, I'm an aspiring entertainer. Here's my information. Next thing you know, we're hanging out regularly and conversing.
8: What was her background?
10: She came from Houston, Texas. She came to Los Angeles before her transition. And she's an aspiring entertainer focusing mostly on singing. So when I told her about this project, she, of course, wanted to participate. But she said, will I be able to sing in the project? And that's basically why we wrote that scene in which she sings at the club. (gasps) found it very difficult to live in Los Angeles in those years after coming here because as you know it's very difficult for trans people to find employment. She happens to be a trans woman of color who came from poverty so the opportunities weren't there for her and uh, it was a struggle for a long time and that LGBT center that services youth at risk was very helpful for her finding her housing, et cetera. So really, she was in a limbo when we met her. She didn't know what she was going to be doing next. And we met her at a time where she was unsure about her future. I mean, this is something she's always wanted to do. And I'm so proud of her. What did you learn from doing this film? Of course, I learned about the sisterhood within the trans community. But again, this is a very specific trans community. I like to use the word community in the plural sense because there are trans communities, there are trans movements. This just happens to be one very small microcosm of one. So within that area, I learned a lot about what trans women of color coming from poverty have to deal with on a daily basis, part of the reasons that actually led them to the streets. They're not there because they want to be in no way, shape, or form. They're there because oppression and discrimination have actually given them no other option but to resort to this underground economy, which is either you know sex work or selling drugs. I also did learn, though, that we all cope with our everyday existence and the pressures and problems with life with humor. I think that's how humans get by on a daily basis. We use humor to get by. These women who are dealing with even more hardship than the rest of us, they have to use their humor to even a greater degree to cope. And that's something that I saw from day one, hanging out with Maya, hanging out with Kiki and their friends For me, it was quite a pleasurable time because I was always laughing. They were making me laugh. They were incredibly witty, incredibly funny, using their humor to get by, making jokes about the predicament that they were in. And then at night, I would get home and I would think about everything. And I would think about the sad state of affairs that their existence is a part of. And it struck me as something that was like, uh, during the day I was laughing and at night I was crying. And I wanted to infuse that into the movie. I wanted to actually have that balance of emotion and of tone in the film because that's how I was feeling on a daily basis while doing this research.
8: This has been a conversation with filmmaker Sean Baker. Tangerine is available on DVD, Blu-ray, digital download, and is currently streaming on Netflix. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
1: Tangerine can be streamed free on the Tubi app. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm David Hunt. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and PocketCasts. I'm David Hunt. My blog, which includes rare audio from the early years of IMRU, can be found at tellmedavid.com. So long, and thanks for listening. My
0: mama told me when I was young we are all born superstars. She folded my hair put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head on, you'll go far. Come listen to me when I say. I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself in regret. just love yourself and you said I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way And I was born this way and so I was born this way, I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way And I was born this way And I was born this way I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way